All right. Good evening. Let's open our Bibles to uh, 2 Kings chapter 9. I'm going to read through the first uh, probably 13 verses of this uh, chapter. But before we do that, I just want to back up a little bit to verse 25 of the previous uh, chapter just to kind of get us an idea of where we are at. Um, Excuse me, uh, Israel... The northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes, they are confederate now together and they are battling uh, the the Syrians up in um, Ramoth-Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, uh, quite a few miles over east of the Jordan River, and that area originally belonged to the tribe of Gad. Remember, that in the very beginning, before the children of Israel came into the promised land, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were very content, instead of going into the promised land, crossing the Jordan from the east, or from the east going west, um, they decided they were going to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So if you're looking at a map of Israel, and there's the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, they were... Uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were very content dwelling over here on the uh, other side of Mount Gilead, which is a a mountain range on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And I don't know if you knew this, just this this is free, by the way. What I'm going to share with you is free of charge. That whole area is a a tectonic plate that uh, the Jordan Valley is actually on a a fault line. (laughs) So if there's ever an earthquake... There's a lot of shaking going on right there at the center, so that's a fault line right between there. But So these two armies, uh, Israel from the north and Judah and Benjamin from the south, they are confederate, um, and they're joining forces to go against a greater enemy, the Aramites, or the uh, Aram, Aram, however you want to call it, uh, which are the Syrians. Aram, A-R-A-M, that's equivalent to Syrian, Okay. So they are going against them, and it really was something that the southern tribes, the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they should have never have gotten intertwined with the northern ten tribes, Um, and it always got them into trouble, and it certainly isn't helping them in their uh, idolatry, because we know that uh, the northern ten tribes never ceased from idolatry from the very beginning after the kingdom split, after Solomon had died, Um, Rehoboam took over the southern two tribes, and Jeroboam, uh, the general of the army, took over um, the uh, northern uh, tribes. And the southern tribes, you know, the Judah and Benjamin, they only had like five really good kings, reformer kings, really good men, and really brought reform back to the children of Israel. In other words, when I say reform, I mean bringing them back to the word of God. Because today when you say reform, that can mean a lot of things. But back then it meant returning to the book, <laughs> returning to the Lord. But the northern ten tribes never did. They always uh, continued in their evil and they never recovered. And God allowed them to go into captivity first by the Assyrians, as we know, in 722 B.C. And, uh, and it wasn't long, a uh, hundred some years afterwards, that... Uh, their brothers from the uh, south, Judah and Benjamin, they got taken away into captivity uh, into Babylon uh, beginning in 606, and ultimately Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, and they were out of their homeland for 70 years until God brought them back. Okay, and so, but tonight we're going to see um, some really interesting turn of events. So uh, let's just read in verse 25 of chapter 8, and then we'll just read through the uh, 13th verse of chapter 9. Notice it says in verse 25 of chapter 8, it says, In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. 
And now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war with Hazael, king of Syria, notice, at Ramoth-Gilead, the city on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And the Syrians wounded Joram, the king of Israel. So the king, Joram, went back to Jezreel to recover from his wounds and... and um, We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> um, to recover from his wounds, which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehor or Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Now in verse 9, so it's important that you know where we're at now. So now the, the, the two tribes, the, or the two uh, kingdoms really, are going to war against Syria over that piece of land, or that city, Ramoth-Gilead, that originally belonged to Israel. And the king of Syria took it unto himself, and that's why now they're trying to get it back. Does that make sense? So they're just trying to reclaim what was originally theirs. And so... Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. So Elisha, the prophet, one of the sons of the prophets, Elisha, the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, get yourself ready, take the flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. And then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and run for your life. <laughs> and don't delay. <laughs> don't stay for lunch. Don't have tea and crumpets. Open the door and beat feet. Okay? So, so the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Yehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, commander. And then he arose and went into the house, and he poured oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And notice the commission. You might want to star this uh, verse 7, because this is the commission of God to Yehu, this man. Here's the commission. <laughs> you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord in the hand of Je uh, at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and he fled. That's a really good idea. Because you've just stirred up a hornet's nest. The best thing to do is get on your Harley and get out of town. Make sure you've got a full gas tank, right? Then Yehu came out of the servants, that, excuse me, then Yehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know the man and his babble. And they said, A lie. Tell us now. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus shalt, says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Yehu is king. Now, obviously, we're going to go through the rest of this. We're going to take communion tonight as well. But um, this chapter, we're going to see the development of the reign of Yehu, this man whom God had given a very uh, specific commission, um, and it was really for retribution. And God has the right to do that. Um, I'm glad that he doesn't call me to do that. Um, but back at, at this time, God had the right to, to uh, judge, and he still does today. He has the right when a nation or a people are going astray. He has the right to, uh, at certain times, uh, especially when that individual, when that nation, whatever it is, is no longer listening to God, God has the right to drop the hammer on that nation, to allow them to go into captivity, to allow them hardship. 
And um, he has that right. And he's going to use this man, Yehu, to be his, his hammer for uh, certain individuals. And uh, so we're going to see uh, the development of his reign. Um, and, and he was first introduced back to us uh, back in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. You can read about him. That's where we first hear of him. But this chapter is going to wrap up the prophecies that the Lord had spoken to Elijah the prophet concerning Ahab, concerning his house, meaning concerning his, his sons and his, his, the men in his uh, dynasty, if you will, and also his wife Jezebel. And it reminds me of a, a phrase that Joe uh, Lewis, a famous heavyweight boxer back in the day, uh, he made this quote. He says, you can run, but you cannot hide. You can run, but you can't hide. I think even uh, Ronald Reagan said that. You can run, but you can't hide. And for all of the harlotry, for all of the idolatry that Ahab and his wife, they were a dynamic duo. And the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that it was really Jezebel who led her husband astray. Now, he was no innocent man. He was complicit in it and willingly did it. But his wife was so bent on idolatry because her dad lived uh, up north of Israel. His name was Ethbaal. He was the king of, of Sidon, I believe it was, or Tyre. I think it was Sidon. And so uh, she grew up in a home that worshipped the devil. I mean, that's really what it is. The Bible tells us that anything other than God, anything else that you worship, there is a demon behind that thing. Because it's not God that you're worshipping. And anything that you are worshipping other than God is demonic, whether it looks nice or not. You can put a, uh, it could be a gold statue of Elvis. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's, a, it's a demonic entity that you're worshipping. There is a pull for the natural man to worship that which he can see with his own eyes, right? Because the mantra of today is, show me, show me. You know, if you live in Missouri, the show me state, show me, and then I'll worship it. Well, God, you may not see him physically right now, although he did walk the earth for 30 years physically as a man. But because of all the idolatry, God is, it's going to catch up to and, and uh, to Ahab, and we've already seen his, uh, his end uh, in previous chapters, but now we're going to see uh, the beginning of Yehu coming after his, the rest of his family. And God told him to do it. And even Jezebel, this very evil, evil woman, God was going to bring retribution upon her own head. In fact, he was going to fulfill the oath that she spoke with her own mouth, which we will see tonight. And so in Galatians, what does it say? It tells us in Galatians 6, verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And that's true today as it was back then. You know, if we, if we uh, sow the whirlwind, we're going to reap the whirlwind. And in this country, we have sown the whirlwind. And we're going to reap the whirlwind. And we are reaping the whirlwind. As we speak. But God has a way of bringing the things of the, out of darkness to light and ultimately to hold all evildoers accountable for their actions. And no one will escape the justice of God. And we're going to see that tonight. So notice in verse 1. Going back into verse 1 in chapter 9, notice it says, And Elisha the prophet called one of, the, one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And I've already described to you the location geographically where this Ramoth-Gilead is. And they call it Gilead, Ramoth-Gilead, because it's literally in a, a mountain range called Gilead. All along the eastern side of the Jordan Valley, on the, side, um, of, uh, on the east side, as you're standing in the Jordan Valley, you see nothing but mountains. Because you're, remember, you're, in a, you're on a fault line. And you look over to your west and you see nothing but mountains and holes and cliffs and caves and desert, you know, or, you know, rocky, desert dry places. And so, get yourself ready. Take this flask and, and go to Ramoth Gilead. So notice verse 2. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshai, and go, and, take, and go in and make him rise from among his associates and take him to an inner room. 
And a lot of times when a king was going to be anointed, they would take them. It would be a private thing oftentimes, just a few people. And, um, and so this was one of those cases. But this Yehu, uh, his name means the Lord is he. The Lord is he. Uh, J, Jehovah, Jehovah we know as God, and Yehu, the Lord is he. And there were five people in the Old Testament named Yehu, but this Yehu mentioned here in verse 2 was the son of Jehoshaphat, but not the Jehoshaphat who was the king of Judah. Because Jehoshaphat was a king of Judah, but this Jehoshaphat is not that Jehoshaphat. This is just a, a man that we don't know anything more about other than that his uh, son was Yehu. And so, and the Bible tells us uh, in the next chapter, in, in chapter 10, verse 36, that this Yehu is going to reign over Israel in Samaria for 28 years. And he reigned from 852 to 841 B.C. And he reigned after the death of Joram. Remember Joram, uh, the king of Israel, he reigned from 852 to 841 B.C., Actually, I just said that. <laughs> and then um, for 28 years. And, and then verse 3, it says, Then take the flask of oil, he tells him, and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then open the door and flee and do not delay. So Elisha here is fulfilling what God had spoken to his predecessor, his, his master, if you will, before he was taken to heaven, Elisha, or Elijah, excuse me. So Elisha is fulfilling what God had spoken to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 through 17. And he's using one of the sons of the prophets to accomplish it. And so, um, so what did God say to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 15. Well, let me read it to you. You can write it in your margin, but let me read it to you. Because this was God's commission for Elijah. Before God took him into the whirlwind by the chariot into heaven, he gave him three things that God wanted him to accomplish. Notice what it says in verse 15 of 1 Kings 19. He says, Then the Lord said to him, speaking of Elijah, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So this is when Elijah had been running for his life after the, the, the situation in, uh, in the Mount Carmel where he faced off with the 450 prophets of Baal and he slew those prophets, remember. And immediately after that, he fled down south to Beersheba and then went further down to Mount Horeb where uh, God gave to the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. And so he runs for his life because he hears that Jezebel has got a contract on his head. So she's coming after him, or, or sending henchmen uh, to come after him. And so he takes off. And, and it's during that time that the Lord said to him, Eli said to Elijah, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, and, and this is one of the things that God wanted him to do, I want you to anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Notice, this is another country. I want you to go to anoint him king. Go figure. <laughs> and also you shall anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. That's the second thing God wanted Elijah to do. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. In other words, your job is done here. And I want you to anoint Elisha. He's going to be your predecessor. And I want you to anoint Hazael, king over Syria. And I want you to anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi. And it shall be, whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Yehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha will kill. So these three things God commissioned Elijah to do. Now in his lifetime, before he was taken up by the whirlwind into heaven... He didn't accomplish all three of those things. Ultimately, they did get accomplished. But the one thing that Elijah did personally is he did anoint Elisha to be prophet in his place. That he did do. But Elisha would be the one to anoint Hazael, king over Syria. We saw that last week. And it would also be one of the sons of the prophets. And we just read it that Elisha would send to Yehu to anoint him to be king over Israel, meaning the northern ten tribes. And so by now, all of these things have been buttoned up. You know, Now the things that God asked Elijah to do 
now were accomplished through not only his servant Elisha, but unto another servant. And finally it was done. And so verse 4 it says, So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. Now this young man here is not Gehazi. Uh, Gehazi has is no longer Elisha's servant. Uh, back in chapter 5, verse 27, we know that because of his greed, he was struck with leprosy. And so this other young man, he goes unnamed. We don't know who he is. But there he is serving the prophet, just being faithful to do something. You know, and and I, I think that's just so wonderful. You know, the, the Bible doesn't even mention his name. And you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to know my name. He knows us by name. He knows us intimately. But he doesn't, uh, the Lord is not hung up on titles and, and who does what in his kingdom. You know, I, I want to have the heart, and, and perhaps you do too, that God could say to any one of us, I just want you to do this. Are you willing to sweep the floor? Are you willing to teach in the Sunday school? Are you willing to clean the bathrooms after church? <laughs> not me. I'm going to be the pastor. I want to be a Sunday school I want to be the worship leader. I want to be the guy with the electric guitar around my neck with the light shining on me and, you know, all the bling, you know, and all that, you know. And it's like, God's like, are you willing to do the smallest thing for me? Isn't that service to the Lord? And here, this man doesn't even have a name. The Bible doesn't even tell us what his name is. And I think there's something really wonderful about that for all of us that I that I'm learning. I'm not saying that I've learned it. I think I have at times, but then I'm, I'm also continuing to learn. It's just important to be a servant of God. I mean, just, just let it be enough to be a servant of God, regardless of who gets the credit. If you're serving under somebody in a ministry, do it your very best. Do it as unto the Lord, not as unto man, and God will reward you for your service to him. And that's really all that should matter. It shouldn't matter about who gets the accolades. And hopefully, the only one who gets the accolades is Jesus, right? So verse 5, so when he arrived there, this servant, there, there were captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Yehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander, because Yehu was the commander of Joram's army. Yes, Joram, the king of Israel. When I say king of Israel, you know what I mean, right? Israel, the northern ten tribes. From now on, when I say Israel, and the Bible makes this very clear too, he's speaking of the northern ten tribes. When he says Judah or Jerusalem, he's speaking about the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Okay, so, so he arose and went into the house, and he poured oil on his head, and he, said, I, uh, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord God, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord. Notice the, the word Lord is all caps. That's the Hebrew term Jehovah or Yahweh or the Tetragrammaton. You might see it where it's Y-H-W-H because the, the word to the Jew was so holy that they, they, they removed the vowels of the whole thing and, and, and they would only speak, they wouldn't say the whole word. They would just mention the, the consonants. And to them, they had such a reverence for the word of God. And I, I love that. There's nothing wrong with that. Would to God we had more reverence for the word of God. Instead of just going, oh, I just you know, tear out a piece of the Bible and read it. Okay, I'm done with that. You know, there was a reverence for that. If you ever get a chance to read about the canonization process or how, or how the scribes, how they wrote the scrolls, and you read about the discipline that they went through, it'll blow your mind. It'll make you never complain about your job ever again. <laughs> I've read some things, and I'm like, oh my goodness, these guys were so diligent. They were so careful, and they did it all for the glory of God. It's amazing. So, notice verse 7. Here's the commission that God gives to Yehu, this man. He says, You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge. Notice, here's the purpose. God never gives a man to do something, especially when it comes to retribution like this, when it's going to mean actually assassinating, killing somebody. He doesn't do this for any reason. There is a reason that God does things. And, you know, Jesus would be canceled today. The, 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 Old Test, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the, of the New Testament. There's no difference. If he were on the earth today, he would be canceled. He'd be kicked off Twitter. He would be, um, the government would be ransacking his house. The FBI would show up and, and, and be tearing his house apart, rifling through it, trying to find, you know, uh, communion crackers or something. I don't know what they're going to find. They're not going to find anything. But God says, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. Yes, 
Yehu, you, you were the commander of the army for Israel. And now I'm asking you, because of the harlotry and the idolatry that never ceased throughout all of his days, Ahab and his horrible wife, Jezebel. Now, did God love Ahab and Jezebel? Yes, he did. He loves people, but he hates the sin. And he hasn't changed. He loves you and I, but he hates the sin. And so it behooves us, doesn't it, to really take a look at sin and, and not play footloose and fancy free with sin. And so many Christians in the church today, it's, it's more like a suggestion now instead of a commandment. And most people think, well, it's the Old Testament. I don't need to pay attention to that. we got the New Testament now. He's a God of grace. I'll just go and party and drink and do what I want. Well, if that's your idea of grace, you are messed up. That's not grace. That's lasciviousness. You are walking on thin ice. If that is your attitude, well, I can just sin and God will forgive me. Yes, if you're sincere, he will forgive you. But you know what? There comes a time when you start flirting with that. God knows the game that you play. And he will chasten you if you're a child of God. He will chasten you and you'll know that you're being chastened. But he's chastening you to bring you back and he's doing it with instruction to bring you back. He doesn't want to destroy you, but if you're evil and you continue bent on evil and you never repent, you better be really careful because everywhere you go, you could be a pile of dust. <laughs> God can strike you at any moment and take your life away and he does it. When a man or a woman is unbelieving and they continue in their sin, never hopes of repentance, they're just hook, line, and sinker evil. Those people you got to pray for because when judgment comes, it usually comes swift and it's over in an instant. And God is justified when it happens. You shall strike down the house of Ahab. Why? Because that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Yes, there is the reason. Part of the reason. Jezebel killed many of the, the true prophets of God because she was an idol worshiper. She was a devil worshiper. And then when finally the real prophets are talking and, and, and obviously against those things, what does she do? She hires a hit squad to go after him and kills him. And God is aware of it. Didn't Jesus say, every hair of your head is numbered? And I know every single hair that falls from your head. He knows. And he is able to determine that. For he says in verse 18, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab, all the males in Israel, both bond and free. And what does it tell us in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6? Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Male and female. Male and female. Let's say it together, it feels so good. Male and female. There are only two genders on this planet, male and female. Amen? God said it. I believe it. Guess what? That settles it. Lex talionis is a Latin term. It means an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And obviously, we don't do that today. We, let, we have laws in place, and they are designed to slow down the spread of sin in man. But back at this time, that's how strict God was with sin. And guess what? Their crime rate was pretty, pretty slim because the consequences were very real, and they were meted out. There was justice. Whenever there's justice and true justice, there is a peace. But man calls it freedom when they can do whatever they want. That's not freedom. That's hedonism. That's, that, that's like a, a, a chaos. You know, it's a nuclear bomb ready to go off. Such is the heart of man. I don't know why we, you know, people can't figure that out. We are inherently evil, not inherently good. Follow me? Doesn't the Bible tell us that? Uh, sorry, I, I, you came tonight thinking, I'm going to feel good message. I want to leave here feeling affirmed. I'm sorry, but you know, you're affirmed, yes, because Jesus loves you. He loves you with all of his heart. That's all the affirmation I need. But I also know that there's an old nature within that left unchecked and without the Spirit of God in my life, he expresses himself in such horrible ways. 
Yes, the old man is still alive and well. Paul understood that. Why do I do evil when I want to do good? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I, the Lord, and there's the answer. (laughs) The Lord is the one who does that. Notice verse 9. So I will make the house of Ahab, notice, like the house of Jeroboam and the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And this is interesting because uh, we've been through this in 1 Kings. If you go back and you can read about um, the house of Jeroboam and the house of Baasha, and they were wicked kings and they murdered people and it was a horrible thing that they did. And, and, and God judged them severely for it. And, and we heard this prophecy you know, before, you know, making his house like the house of, uh, like the house of Jeroboam. God's going to make um, this, this king, Joram, the same. And, though, and, and through the prophecies that God had spoken to Ahab, God had warned Ahab and Jezebel, but notice they did not Listen, uh, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. Just turn left a, a couple of pages, probably five or six, seven pages to your left, and you'll come to 1 Kings chapter 21 because it's, uh, it's in this prophecy. We're going to see, um, if you remember, Ahab wanted a, a neighbor's land so he could build a vineyard, and the man didn't want to give it to the king, and the king pouted. And so what did his good wife Jezebel do? She has him murdered and then has his land given to the king. So now he's happy. Oh, happy day, right? And so after this, God speaks to, uh, he condemns Ahab, and he uses Elijah the prophet to do it. First Kings chapter 21, verse 17, notice what the Lord said to him. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. And there he is, in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it after his wife had him killed. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Boy, God is uh, not mincing any words, isn't he? He's not going to him and saying, Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, you had a tough upbringing, and I know things were really hard, you know, and, and you really didn't mean it. I know it, and it's okay. You know, just, just don't do it again, all right? I mean, I know you murdered a lot of people, and you're a killer, and you did all this stuff, but, you know, just try to be better next time, okay? All right, just write a check for five bucks to the state of New York and we'll call it done. <laughs> he says, arise and go down to meet Ahab. There he is in the field. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? So Ahab, verse 20, said to Elijah, have you, you have found me, O my enemy. And Elijah answered Ahab, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you and I will take, and here God is speaking through the prophet, and so I will take away your posterity, notice, and I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. And notice in verse 22, it's very similar to the verse we were just looking at. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. See, God cares about his people, and this king was given over to idolatry, and that hurts other people, doesn't it? So does God go after the people and blame them? No, he goes to the head first. And he says, what are you doing? I've allowed, I've anointed, you're in this place because I put you there. And there's a responsibility with that kingdom, Ahab. So let me ask you again, what are you doing? Why are you worshiping these gods that don't have ears or eyes and they can't speak, they can't hear, they're dumb idols? Why are you worshiping these things when you can come to the true and living God and have newness of life and have a relationship with me and have your sins forgiven? And concerning, verse 23, notice, and concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was none, verse 25, notice this, like Ahab, who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. 
Okay, so now we see this prophecy, very similar to the one that the, this man, uh, this uh, son of the prophet is speaking um, uh, to, uh, to the man of God. So notice, and turn, uh, go to 1 Kings uh, chapter 22, just uh, one chapter to your uh, right there. And then now we find out, we see actually this prophecy partially fulfilled upon Ahab. And I say partially because we're going to see the end of this prophecy taking place in the scriptures that we're looking at tonight. So it's partially fulfilled. Notice what it says in 1 Kings 22, beginning in verse 19. Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, another spoke in that manner. And then his spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And isn't this interesting? This evil spirit is able to approach uh, God. We see that in Job, don't we? Do you think evil spirits are approaching God right now on, to say uh, to mess with you and ask for permission? Yep. The Lord said to him, in that way, or I'm sorry, the Lord said to him, in what way? And so he said, I will go and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and you also shall prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster against you. And um, let me see. Let's, let's go down to, um, you can read the rest of that, but I'm just going to skip on to verse 29 for the sake of time. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, they went up to Ramoth Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. And so the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. And uh, now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, Fight with no man, small or great, but only with the king of Israel. And so it was when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat that they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. And therefore they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah at the time, he cried out. And it happened that when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, it wasn't Ahab, that they turned back from pursuing him. And now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. And so he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle for I am wounded. And so this man pulls back a bow. He wasn't even looking. He's just, you know, one of those fits of rage where you're just like, and you just let it fly. And it just happens to land in between the joints of the armor and strikes Ahab, wounds him mortally. So the battle increased that day, verse 35, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. And the blood ran out onto the floor of the chariot. And as the sun was going down, a shout went out through the army, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. And so the king died, was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, and the dogs licked up the blood while the harlots bathed, according to the word of the Lord which had been spoken. So this prophecy concerning Ahab himself had come to fruition, but there was still... Ahab's house, his sons, and there was also some unfinished business with his evil wife, Jezebel. Now, God would have much rather have had these people repent and turn from their sin because is God the, uh, the, the God of the living or of the dead? He's the God of the living. It, is it his will that none should perish? Yes, it is. He doesn't want people to perish. God has no delight in, in striking the, the wicked. He has no delight in it in all. He would much rather that we repent and live. Such a simple thing, isn't it? But verse 10 now, back in our text this evening, speaks of God's unfinished business with Jezebel. And so the son of one of the prophets, he continues now to speak to Yehu and continues with this commission of things that God wants him to do. So notice verse 10, the, the, the young man tells Yehu, the dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and he fled. 
<laughs> and again, this is interesting because God would use a man like Yehu to be his hammer of judgment. We spoke about that earlier. And God has used individuals, and he's also used nations to be his hammer of judgment. God used Assyria and Babylon in his judgment against Israel and Judah, respectively. He used an ungodly nation to punish his own people, and then God will turn around and bring punishment or vengeance upon that nation for doing so. So it almost seems unfair, doesn't it? But the thing is, is these kings, especially the kings of Assyria and Babylon, in the case that I just shared with you, they did it of their own evil hearts. God just had the advantage of knowing what they were going to do and the intent of their heart. And he just allowed them to do what they were doing, what they had intended already to do. And when we act on our own volition, God has a right to either chasten us or, in, in really dire circumstances for the unbeliever, to actually bring judgment And swift judgment. He has the right to do that. So verse 11, So Yehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? So this prophet was probably clothed in sackcloth, and he probably, maybe he walked with a limp, maybe he looked like Quasimodo. We really don't know, but there was something about the young man, perhaps the way he walked or ran or his speech or his clothing or maybe his uh, nonverbal communication led the others to believe, This guy is insane. What is he doing? must be a man of God. I like that because most people think that we're crazy. You're crazy. I love that. You can call me crazy. I believe in Jesus. I love his word. I'm, I'm okay to be called a crazy. You can call me a Jesus freak. You can call me a Bible thumper. You can call me whatever you want. I really don't care. I know where I'm going. I know who loves me and I know where I'm going. So they said, as all well, why did this madman come to you? And he said, you know the man and his babble. And they said, you're not not telling us the truth. Tell us now. Because they they knew something was up. Because of the way he came in and then he ran out of there, they're like, this prophet told you something. And what was it? Oh, nothing. We're just not that, we're not that dumb, Yehu. Tell us the truth. And so he spoke to them and he said, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And so then each man hastened to put his garment and put it on the top of the steps and they blew trumpets saying, Yea, who is king? And this blowing of trumpets and laying the clothing uh, underneath their feet, this is all very common practice for somebody who is anointed king. Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what did they do? They laid their clothes on the ground as he made that, that ascent from, or the descent from the Mount of Olives, and then finally the ascent going into Jerusalem. They laid palm fronds and, and branches and, and clothing before him, and it was just a way of heralding a king. That's a very common thing that they did. And so verse 14, so Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshai, uh, this guy Nimshai, his name, I, this is kind of fun, his name means weasel which I, th- I thought was kind of fun. I, I just, I, I giggled. Uh, it, it means weasel or drawn out, but I personally like the term weasel. You can actually look it up. I, I'll show it to you. It's in, the, it's in the dictionaries. It's weasel. I like that. What's your name? Weasel. So he conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel against Hazael, king of Syria. But remember, King Joram had returned to Jezreel. Jezreel is a city just west now of the Jordan River, um, just southwest of the Sea of Galilee in what you and I would call the uh, Valley of Esdralon or the Jezreel Valley. Uh, That's where this uh, Jezreel town was. And so uh, Joram is wounded. He goes back to this place to mend his wounds And so Yehu said, if you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. And so Yehu may have wanted to surprise Joram because Joram is ill. He's wounded pretty badly. He's going to Jezreel. And now the captain of his guard is telling everybody, don't tell anybody what just happened here. So he's putting everybody on some kind of non-disclosure agreement saying, don't tell anybody what has just happened here, that I was anointed king over Israel. Keep it under wraps. And so everybody did. And why did he do that? Because Joram wasn't suspecting at all that his captain of his army would be coming after him. 
He thought, and as we will see, that he was just marching back to tell him perhaps some good news, that maybe there was some good news on the, on the war front, that maybe they had conquered Ramoth-Gilead. So Yehu, verse 16, rode in a chariot, went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Yehu as he came, and he said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet him and let him say, is it peace? And so what he's doing is, he, they, you know, the guy's up on the tower, and he's looking across the valley, and he sees some smoke, and he sees some dust on the horizon. He's thinking, you know what, there's some people coming. And so the king's like, go send out a horse, send out an ambassador, find out, are you here for peace? What, what's going on? And so the horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Yehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. In other words, don't worry about the situation. Just get behind us. And whoever that ambassador was, was going to be very comfortable obeying the commander of the king's guard. Because the king's guard is coming back home. Follow me? So he says, Get back and follow us in. And so... The watchman reported, the messenger went to them, but is not coming back. And then he said, send out a second horseman who came to them and, and, and say the same thing. Is it peace? And Yehu answered, what have, you to do, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman, verse 20, reported, saying, he went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of, the, of Yehu, the son of Nimshai, for he drives furiously. So this guy must have had a trademark, the way he rode a horse and rode a cavalry he had a, a certain way of doing things, and they recognized his pattern of doing things. You know, I'm kind of thinking maybe he looked like Clint Eastwood. You know, had the hat on. You know, and the leathery looking face. So what's up? What are you doing? Right. So Joram, what does he say? Make ready and make my chariot ready. And so the king, again, remember this. He didn't suspect Joram, or he didn't suspect that Yehu was number one, anointed king. He, he, he wasn't aware of that. He sees him coming. He thinks he's coming back to give some good news. So the king is totally um, not thinking about anything. He's thinking, well, here's my guy coming back. I'm going to go out and meet him. Hey, Ahaziah, come with me, and we'll go out in chariots, and we'll meet him and find out you know, there's something going on. I want to hear that news as quickly as possible. So they, they, they go out there. Um, So then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Yehu, and they met him on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Does that ring a bell? Remember in 1 Kings chapter 21, who was it? Whose plot of land was Ahab so excited about and wouldn't sell the land to him? It was Naboth the Jezreelite, and he's the guy who got killed and Jezebel had him killed. And so now, Yehu is coming back and meeting him at that same plot of land. Something is happening. Something, God is orchestrating and working things. Pretty interesting. And they went out to meet Yehu and met him on the property of Naboth, a Jezreelite. Now it happened when Joram saw Yehu that he said to him, Is it peace, Yehu? In other words, is there peace at Ramoth-Gilead? Have you guys been successful? At Re Did you get it back from you know, the king of Syria? Did you win the battle? What happened? And so he answered, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. <gasps> Uh-oh. You can see Joram, just the, shade, the pink in his face just went all to his feet. And now he's thinking to himself, now I know why he was in such a furious rush to get here. Because I'm his target. And so what does he do? Then Jehoram turned around and he fled. And, and remember, this king who was already wounded, he has enough energy to get in the chariot to go out in the field and meet him at this plot of land. He, he doesn't even have his armor on, right? Because he's not going out to battle. He's meeting his own guys coming in. So he, has, he doesn't even have his breastplate on, nothing. He's going out there with just his you know, you know, House of Guitars t-shirt. And he goes out there. <laughs> I have to do that because I want to make sure you guys are paying attention. 
So Joram turned and fled, and he said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! So he's trying to save this king of Judah, saying, Get out of here. You know, you better flee because I'm fleeing. So Joram uh, drew his bow. And so Joram is taking off in his chariot, and Jehu, Yehu, excuse me, drew his bow with full strength, and he shot Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow come out, came out at his heart. So he shot him from the back, right on the left side of him, and the arrow came right out this side. The whole thing, he just shot him straight through with an arrow. And, um, and the arrow came out at his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. And uh, then Yehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. And what is he doing by doing that? Fulfilling prophecy. He's doing exactly, he's, he's at least, uh, now I'm not saying that Yehu was a, a great man or anything like that. I'm not you know, condoning anything, but I am saying that he's doing what God had told him to do. And, um, and so he lays this man's, um, Jehoram's body in the plot of land because that's the, 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 the house of Ahab. Because Jehoram belonged to the house of Ahab. He says, do you remember when you and I were riding behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord had this burden upon him? And then he shares the burden. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons. And says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore, take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. And so we learn a new piece of information here that we didn't learn earlier in Kings. And that is that Jezebel not only had Naboth killed, but she killed his sons. It wasn't enough just to kill the man, because once you kill the man, who does the property go to? The sons. But if you kill the sons, then the property goes back to Ahab, right? And so that's exactly what she did. And so they knew they were fulfilling this prophecy that God had spoken through Elijah. And again, I just want to reiterate that prophecy back in 1 Kings 21. The word came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him... Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also take possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what happened. And Yehu knew that he was fulfilling that prophecy. But... The plot thickens because here's something that God didn't tell Yehu to do. Look at verse 27 in our text tonight. But when Ahaziah, so now they got Yehu, or now they got Jehoram, and now Yehu is going to go after Ahaziah, the king of Judah. Did God tell him to go after the king of Judah? He didn't, did he? He said, go after Ahab and his sons, Jehoram. Go after him and his sons and Jezebel. He didn't say anything about the southern tribes, the southern two. He didn't mention anything about them. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagan. And so Yehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblaim. And then he fled to Megiddo and died there. And um, if you go to Israel with us sometime, Megiddo is, a, is an incredible place. And it's right there, you, you can see Megiddo from the, uh, the mountain where they had this square off with the 450 prophets of Baal. It's all in that Jezreel Valley, known as the Valley of Armageddon. When you're up on that mountain where, Je where um, um, uh, Elijah was and he was facing off with the prophets of Baal, right down the hill there's a stream, the Kishon River, and then over to the other side, you see the Megiddo over there. And then there, today, there's an Israeli airfield out in the middle there. And the, the F-18s and whatever, they fly in and they land and then they disappear. <laughs> they go right underneath the, they have little conveyors that, go them, that bring them down underneath. And then they file them away. Yes, in the Valley of Jezreel or in the Armageddon Valley, it's a hornet's nest under there. When those guys start coming out, they're like hornets. And you don't want to get stuck in that hornet raid there. So 
So this is where it's happening. And so, but the killing of Ahaziah was not God's commission for this man. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem, and they buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. What is the city of David? It's Jerusalem, but even more specifically, Zion. Zion is in Jerusalem, of course, but it's a little sliver of land on the southwest or southeast corner, and you can visit it today. They've uncovered David's uh, palace and everything. It's really beautiful. So notice verse 29. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become the king over Judah. So this eleventh year of Joram was 841 B.C. because Joram reigned from 852 to 841 B.C. And now we come to the final section of our text tonight, and then we'll take communion together. And this is where God is basically going to make good on the oath that Jezebel had made. We first read about Jezebel. It says, now, when Yehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel had heard of it, because now she's heard that, that Yehu has killed Jehoram, and she's also heard that God or that Yehu has killed Ahaziah. And so as he's entering in Jezreel, she's thinking, my time is up as well. And so what does she do? She goes in and sits before her vanity mirror, and she puts on makeup, eyeshadow, all the stuff, puts her hair up, gets all dressed in a queenly gown, and, and she's going to mock him as, as he comes in because she knows that her time is coming to a close, I believe. But we first read about Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 16. Um, you can read verse 30 and 33 of 1 Kings 16, and that really is where we are introduced to her, uh, of where her father was and the idolatry that her family was involved in. But she was a, an evil woman, and she ruled her husband. She was a staunch Baal worshiper. She had Naboth killed, the, the, the Jezreelite gave the land to her husband, and she also threatened to kill Elijah because he killed 450 of her favorite um, uh, devil-worshipping prophets. God had them kill them. And so she's mad like a hornet wanting to come after him and kill him. And remember what she said. And God is going to see that it comes to pass. In 1 Kings 19 verse 2. When she found out that Elijah had killed her prophets, what did she say? Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And of course, as soon as Elijah hears this, what does he do? He stands up and says, Go ahead. No, he runs. He runs for his life. And maybe we would do the same as well, but he runs, he tucks tail and runs down to Beersheba in the very southern part of Judah. And that's where God meets him when he's running. But notice, she said, may, may the gods, lowercase g, do to me and more also if I don't have his head on a stick in my front yard tomorrow. That's basically what she's saying. And God would make sure that this evil woman got what was coming to her. And fulfill this oath that she made against herself. In 1 Kings 21, we, we looked at the, the, the beginning part of that chapter, but in verse 23 of 1 Kings 21, God, through Elijah, pronounces judgment against Jezebel. What does he say? And he says, And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, and we actually read this before, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Because of her idolatries. And then verse 31, back in our text, it says, Then, as Yehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And so she's speaking to Yehu, but she's calling him Zimri. And the reason she's doing this is if you read 1 Kings 16, you remember that Zimri uh, killed his, his master and all of his, all of his kids, and then he too ended up being killed not too long after that. And so basically what she is saying to him, are you going to kill me? And, you're, and, and pretty soon you're going to die too. Remember that, Yehu, you're coming after me, but your day is coming very shortly. So what she's doing is taunting him by calling him, uh, impersonating Zimri and calling him Zimri because of what Zimri had done and the horrible things that he did. And so... He looked up at the window, and there she is in the second or third story of this, of this window, and she's looking out the window. 
And he says, who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and then he said, throw her down. And so they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. Now, you know, this is really hard to see. It's hard to hear. You know, the Bible can be very graphic about things, and, um, you know, but it, it's here. And, and, and this is just the, the horrible end of a woman who has just left the earth unrepentant. And, and, and the Lord doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. We heard that. God would much rather have had her live. But it, it, it's a horrible thing when a human being who has been given so many opportunities to turn and, and, and continues in their stubbornness, in their idolatry, and, and doesn't repent of their sin. It really leaves God no other choice. There comes a time, and I'm so glad that I don't know where that line is. Only God does. And I have, you know, that, that's his business. And, and that ought to bring a gravity to our heart, doesn't it? That, that means that I don't want to, even as a Christian, I, I don't want to be uh, playing loose with sin. I want to take it seriously. I don't want to do these things against the Lord who gave his life for me. I want to honor him now with this life, don't you? I don't want to be like that old person. If I'm born again, that means that that old nature of mine is gone. I'm not a Jezebel anymore, or a Jezebel, I don't know what they call a guy. Jezebel, Jezebel. I'm not, I'm not that person anymore. God has created something new in me and you as well. And he wants us to thrive and to live and to love him and to love others. What a great deal that is. And so hearing about the severe judgment of God is, is a little bit odd for us. But that's the other side of intense love, is intense judgment. And there's no way around it. So when he had gone in, notice, he trampled her with the horses, and then he's hungry. You know, typical man at noontime. He goes in, he eats, and he drinks. And he said, now go see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And therefore they came back and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by a servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezreel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field, in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. Amazing, isn't it? But you know, this is just... And now, all those prophecies... and uh, 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 Feel free to come on up... Um, yeah, and we'll, we'll take communion in just a second. But it's just amazing to me how God finally in this chapter at the end, he, he ties up a lot of these prophecies that have been spoken earlier in the book of Kings, and he just ties it up into a nice, actually not a nice little bow, but it's a, he, he fulfills those things specifically and seriously. He, he fulfills those things. And how does God know what was going to happen? To Jezebel. Specifically, he, he could tell the end from the beginning. He, he has that ability, and, and that's the God we serve. And that, that encourages me, doesn't it, you? Because if we're his children, we're no longer enemies of God. We are his servants. We are his beloved. We are the church, the bride of Christ. And if he loves us, is there any good thing that he would withhold from us? See, we will never see the judgment of God like this poor woman did. And you know, I think of her death, how horrible it was, and yet that's not the worst part for her. She suffered a horrible death, and now she's ushered into eternity of suffering. For eternity, do you understand? And you and I, all of us here tonight, are here because God has saved us. And he loves us. And even when we mess up, even when we sin, what do we do? We confess it, and we confess it to him, we turn from it, and we move on. And if we fall into it again, what do we do? We confess it, we turn from it, and pretty soon you're going to get tired of confessing and feeling horrible, and you're going to say, I'm done with this, whatever it is. And when you finally get serious and, and God gives you that grace, you're going to be out of it, and you're going to be repented. You're going to have repented of whatever it was. And you walk in newness of life. You're not perfect, but you're, you're forgiven by a perfect God, and you're on your way to glory because of the, the blood of Christ. And so that's what we're going to do tonight as we, as we take communion, as, um, as Aubrey leads us in worship. 
Amen. Jesus, the night that he was taken, remember he was in the upper room and they had a Passover meal. And Jesus, at one point, he broke the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. He says, take and, and, and eat this in remembrance of me. And for the blood and the, that he was going to shed on the cross and for his body that was going to be broken just hours from then, he was already anticipating the covenant being secured. And yet there were so many things that could have happened to prevent that. You remember even Pilate at one time during the trial of Jesus. He says, I find no, nothing wrong with this man. He was committed to let him go. And do you think Jesus was going, oh no, 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 you have to take me to the cross. <laughs> Today's the day. I have, to, I have to accomplish my father's will. And yet he didn't say a word because he knew who Pilate was. And he knew the events that were going to take place. And he knew there was nothing that was going to keep him. And he didn't have to do a thing. It was The Lord had it all planned. And he did this for us. He did it for you and I. His beloved. You're his beloved. Isn't that wonderful to think of? That he just looks upon you and he sees you as with no spot or blemish. I don't know about you, but that's really refreshing to me. He can look at you regardless of your day, the things that you've said, maybe the things you've even done today. And you know, sometimes you can feel as a Christian like, oh, Lord, I'm just not, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be here tonight. I'm not worthy to even take this cup and this bread. And he said, that's why I did it. <laughs> that's why I did it. I did it freely for you. It's going to cost me everything. And I freely have given my life for you. And that's what these tokens represent. There's nothing magical about them. They're just simply tokens expressing what he did, his body broken. And so let's take the bread. And remember that same night he took the cup and he passed it around. This is the blood of the New Testament in my blood that hadn't even been shed yet, but it would be hours from then. Let's take it. And you know this, but in the Middle East, one of the most intimate things people can do together is have a meal together. And you know, we're certainly not, we don't have uh, chicken or steak or anything like that tonight, but we're in agreement, aren't we? We're in agreement about what, this, about what Jesus did. And we take this in remembrance of his death, that he died for us. What a wonderful thing. Isn't it? Let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, are very thankful, Lord, that we are in the Beloved. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord. I pray that, Lord, regardless of how they're feeling tonight, regardless of how down they may feel, there may be someone here tonight or um, elsewhere that might be really hurting Lord, feeling like, what's the use? And Lord, you paid the price for us. And, and Lord, I am so thankful that I'll never see a day. The worst that, it, that my life will be is whatever happens on this earth. That, that's the worst it's going to get for us. And Lord, but for others who don't know you, that's not going to be the case. And so, Father, help us to remember what Christ did for us and be willing to share that message. Lord, especially today, especially now in America when so many people are hurting and the, the country splintered and fragmented, Lord, we need to love on people regardless of anything, Lord, because we are all in the same boat. We need you, Jesus. So encourage our hearts with that tonight, Lord, and send us out tomorrow, wherever we're at in our workplace, wherever we're at in school. Lord, help us to be that light unto you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.